For scripture reading, we're going to turn to Luke 1. Luke 1, read the narrative of the angel's appearance to Mary, which is also when she conceives. Begin reading with verse 26 of Luke 1. And in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, announced previously, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary rose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, 
For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. And we read that far in God's Word. <clears throat> this morning we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 14. What is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is at this point in its explanation of the second person of the Trinity, according to the Apostles' Creed, that the Catechism shifts from treating the names and nature of the Mediator Christ to treating the states, the two states of Jesus Christ. The Catechism, of course, is following a long-standing tradition in the church going back to ancient times in treating the doctrine of Christ, and it does so following the Apostles' Creed, which first treats the names of the second person of the Trinity, the names Jesus, the title Christ, the phrase only begotten Son of God, our Lord. And then it treats the two states of the mediator, known as the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. Those two states of Jesus Christ are taught in the Apostles' Creed because they are taught in Scripture. And the outstanding, clearest passage on those two states 
is found in Philippians 2, where those two states are put in terms of two forms that Jesus, according to his person, is the eternal Son of God. He has the form of God. And he humbles himself unto death. He humbles himself unto death. And then goes on to say, And therefore God has also highly exalted him. And now the treatment of the catechism begins the explanation of that state of humiliation, beginning now with his conception in birth, and it will trace that all the way through his lifelong suffering, then his suffering especially at the end of his life, his condemnation under Pontius Pilate, and his crucifixion, death and burial. That's all the state of humiliation. And then it treats the state of exaltation, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his sitting at God's right hand to return again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus now is in a state of exaltation, and a state of exaltation that will come to its great glory and perfection in the coming of Christ. Now, we're going to treat that somewhat. It's not clear and evident in the explanation of the Catechism, um, that state, but that's what's being explained, so we're going to spend some time on it in the sermon this morning. And we're going to see this basic truth. This is helpful to understand. The state of humiliation and state of exaltation really is somewhat of a misnomer. What we're really referring to is that Jesus' condition is one of humiliation, and his condition is one of exaltation. But the explanation of why his condition is one of humility and why his condition then changes to one of exaltation is due to his status or his state. So that's why we refer to it as the state of humiliation and state of exaltation, but it's really his condition. Those two terms refer to his condition, but the explanation for that condition is his state, his status, and the idea is his legal status before God. What explains his humiliation? Well, the answer is because his status is that he's legally guilty before God. That's what's going to explain every one of these stages or steps in humiliation. He's legally guilty before God. Now the amazing thing is, is as the Catechism points out, it's not because he himself personally sinned against God and thus became guilty. No. No, no. As his trial points out, he was innocent. He committed no sin. So how is he guilty? And the answer is, he comes guilty with our sins. And since now the conception and birth belong to that state of humiliation or the condition of humiliation, that means his status was guilty already when he came. He was conceived with a guilty status. Consequently, 
his condition is going to change to exaltation because his legal status changes. In his death, he pays for, he atones for all the sins that make him guilty. And so his status becomes before God one of innocence. And because he is innocent and God is a just and righteous God, God must highly exalt him. So we're going to spend a little time on that uh, this morning and, and flesh that out a little bit more in light of this Lord's Day. And then one other concept too that is often overlooked but is a good thing to bring up here. And that's one more name of Christ and that's his name, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. That especially emphasizes his humiliation but also his exaltation where this is all leading. So let's consider this morning the Savior's humiliation and his conception in birth. And we'll notice the reality, the salvation, and then significance. Actually, I'm going to flip those two. We could talk about the significance and then the salvation, or vice versa, but we'll do the salvation second. The reality. What's being explained by the conception and birth of Jesus is what Scripture calls the incarnation. Incarnation. The incarnation refers to what Scripture calls the infleshing. Carnal, carnate, refers to flesh. And so the biblical word is infleshing. The Scripture often speaks of Jesus coming in the flesh. And so that's often the word that's used with regard to what the Catechism is explaining the incarnation or infleshing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's accomplished by the conception of Jesus by the Holy Ghost and His birth of the Virgin Mary. As we've read, as we read, there are two important features of the conception and birth of Jesus Christ. The first is that he is conceived within the womb of a virgin named Mary and born also of her. That's the first feature that's very, very important. Everywhere that this is mentioned, whether it's in the prophecy of Isaiah that foretells of this, or the narrative itself, what's emphasized is that she was espoused, she was engaged to be married, but she had not yet known any man, as she herself puts it. How can this be knowing that I know not a man? There had been no sexual intercourse by which a child normally is conceived and born. The conception and birth is in the womb of a virgin, and a particular virgin named Mary. Belonging to this also, in Scripture, is always emphasized her lowly estate. Jesus is not conceived and born in the womb of a noble queen of the nation of Israel. He is indeed born from the royal line of David, or from David, who is the great king of Israel. 
but she is living in Nazareth. She herself notes many times that part of the incarnation and the wonder and the glory of it all is her low estate. And by all indications, it's about as low as you could possibly imagine for someone to exist in the nation of Israel, and especially now in comparison to what she should be, being a descendant of the great King David, she has rights and privileges that otherwise would be hers. She should be royalty. She should be rich. She should be associated with the great princes and court of the nation of Israel, but she isn't. She is espoused to also a son of David, and one, the Scriptures indicate, is actually from the royal line of David. She is espoused to the one who is the rightful heir to the throne of King David, but emphasizing again her low estate is this man is not going to be given that right. That right is not going to be recognized when it comes to Jesus and his association to his adoptive father. What's always emphasized is that he is but a carpenter. Again, living in Nazareth, a man of no account. But especially emphasized is that Joseph is not the father. He will be raised by a father to a certain point. There is great significance, as we pointed out around Christmas time, of the fact that Joseph is his adoptive father, because that is what gives Jesus the right to the throne of David. But there's not much mention of him after that. The other feature of the incarnation is that this occurs by an act of God and God alone. Here we might see that the Scriptures emphasize the involvement of all three persons. We might assume that is because it is the Son of God who is conceived and born in the womb of Mary, that it's only one. But even in the narrative that we read, this occurs by the power, by the operation of the Holy Spirit. That too is significant and emphasized in the Scriptures as much as that he's conceived and born of a virgin. The point is that he is conceived not by an earthly father, but God is his father. God the Holy Spirit is the power by which it occurs. It is the Son of God, the person of the Son of God, who actually is conceived and born in her womb. And it is by, the Scriptures usually emphasize, by the decision and choice of God the Father. He is the source of this great work. And so all three persons are actually involved with the Incarnation. This is something that we noted earlier when we took note 
that God always operates as one. And all three persons are always involved with all the work of God, although one or the other might be emphasized. But what is also striking is that when one examines that act of God, it is only one of the persons who actually is incarnate. The person, that which says I in Jesus the Christ, is not the triune God. The person of Jesus, that which says I, is only one person of the Trinity. The ecumenical creeds always emphasize that. If you read them, they stress that. That it is not the Father who is incarnated. It is not the Spirit who is incarnated. It's by the Spirit, but it is not the Spirit who is incarnated. It is only the Son. Again, showing how important the real distinction between the persons is. It's not imaginary. There are three really, truly distinct persons in the being of God, and that especially shows in the incarnation. Now, when we put this all together, the other thing that Scriptures always emphasize is that this really is the miracle of all miracles in the Scripture. Certainly, there are many, many wonders all God's works are wonders. We saw not so long ago with regard to God the Father that even His work of providence is an amazing, amazing wonder of God's grace that God operates and uses even providence to accomplish His gracious purpose in the world. And even though things work ordinarily, and regularly, it's an amazing work of God. Then there's the creation. How stunning and amazing is that work? So stunning and amazing that man today denies that creation, finds other ways to explain how the universe has come into being and how it operates, taking away from God's glory. Then there are all the special miracles that are highlighted in Scripture throughout but in a number of places, the Scriptures emphasize this is the miracle. And in a passage that we read, that was emphasized when God brings up that nothing is impossible for God. And that's repeated in the Scriptures. This miracle is emphasized in especially this, that it is the only one that's prophesied and is not fulfilled physically other than in this instance. If you look at other prophecies, for example, there are many prophecies that apply to our age and in our time, even in the Old Testament, but they always had an earthly physical fulfillment too, often referring to earthly kings or nations. When Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, speaks of a virgin conceiving, and that would be a sign that is not fulfilled until it actually occurs with the Virgin Mary, God showing how special it was. But especially God saying, 
Is anything too impossible for him? Mary's own wonderment at it. That was God saying, if there's anything impossible, even for me, if there's anything that ought to stun us and amaze us with regard to the power, the wisdom, the amazing, amazing grace of God, it's this miracle. And we're going to emphasize in just a little bit that miracles always emphasize God's grace. God doing the impossible out of grace. It emphasizes the power of His grace. Now, what's the miracle? What's the amazing part of that? Well, a couple of things. The, the first is that it is the Son of God who is conceived and born. Just consider that. God, God has no beginning. God cannot be born. God cannot be conceived. He's the conceiver. He's the one who gives birth. He's the source of all things. How in the world can God be conceived and born in the womb of a virgin? How can the second person, which is eternally begotten, be born? Think about that. Now, there's an explanation. And the explanation is that the second person takes a human nature to himself. The idea is not that the Son of God, the second person, was not prior to his conception and birth. No. Especially John, when explaining the incarnation, the infleshing, points out that he always existed. So a new person is not created. A new person is not all of a sudden come into being. The person is the same. But that person now takes a nature that he did not have before. Exactly because he's eternal and eternally begotten, he always had a divine nature. Always was God. God out of God. God perfectly. God's only begotten Son. But now he takes a nature. That's part of the miracle. Secondly, that God takes that nature in such a way that the Son of God now becomes fully man. It's not that He takes a nature like you and I might put on a cloak or a coat that we can take and put down. It's not that He takes a human nature just so that Christ says, I have a human nature. But no, the Scriptures emphasize that this Son of God, who is the eternal Son of God, is also now a man. And that's one thing that's emphasized in the phrase, the Son of Man. He's fully man. Time and time the Scriptures emphasize that. And the great battles that were fought in the early church were about, well, to what extent is he man? And the answer was always the same in every single way you can possibly imagine except one. Does a man have a brain? Yes, he had a human brain. Does he have a human body? Yes, he has a human body. Well, maybe he has a human body, but his soul is divine. The church said, no, that's heresy. He, he, he has a human soul too. Well, does he not have a... Divine soul, yes, he has really two souls. That's the idea. Two spirits. 
A human spirit and a divine spirit. Well, what about minds? Well, he has two of those then too. A human mind and a divine mind. You must look at him and say, that's a man. That's a real man. That's a man in every way that you can imagine. And that's partly the teaching of the phrase, the Son of Man. That name that I wanted to emphasize was Jesus' favorite name for himself. That's the name that he referred to himself the most by. Now in the passage we read, the phrase Son of God is brought out. Well, think about what that name means, Son of God. It means he's God out of God. He's truly God. No one looks at that phrase, Son of God, and says, well, that just means he's a Son of God like we are. No, 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 no. It means he's truly God out of God, and he's fully God. The idea of Son of Man is the same way. Same thing. He is a man born out of man. That means the nature he has, and again, this is the emphasis of Scripture and the creeds everywhere, is he gets that nature from his mother. Again, part of the miracle is not that God makes a new creation in Mary. That somehow he makes a human nature that is new material, new stuff. It comes from nothing like the creation. And God then implants that in Mary. No, 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 no. The Scriptures reject that too. They say, no, part of the miracle is that there is a real conception, just like all other human conceptions, in her womb, using her nature, her flesh. Notice it's the in-fleshing. Using her flesh, and that's impregnated. So that it grows just like any other human child. Except the Father is God. That belongs to the miracle. And why? The Scriptures say, well, otherwise he's not a son of Adam. He has to be a real man. Again, the the phrase son of man emphasizes that. The phrase son of man emphasizes that he represents man. He comes from man. He's the man of men. And that can't happen if that nature just is a new creation. No, it has to... You have to be able to trace his DNA, trace his lineage actually to Adam, actually to David, actually to Abraham. Those are all things that God promised. The seed of the woman is what's going to crush the head of the serpent. Not just God, but the seed of the woman. It is Abraham's seed to which the promises are made. It is David's son who will sit upon His throne forever and ever. Notice how Mary takes note of that. The fulfillment of God's promise to her great-great ancestor David is going to be fulfilled by what God did in her womb. Now belonging to the miracle is this. That God remains completely God. Eternal God. That this occurs in such a way that the Son of God doesn't become a man in such a way that He's no longer God. That He's a sort of God-man. Sometimes He's referred to that way. That's a mistake. It really is. At least easily misunderstood. 
so that there's God and there's man. And then we have this God-man. In other words, he's a sort of third thing. No, 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 no. The idea is, the miracle is, that this conception and birth occurs so that he is fully man and also fully God. And the God part doesn't become confused and mixed with a man part. So it becomes a third thing, or the other way around, that the man part takes on godly, eternal qualities that belong only to God. No. As a man, all the qualities that belong to man, except sin, are there. As God, all those are there also. Belonging to the miracle is that this is permanent. Belonging to the conception nativity. And the Catechism emphasizes this. Notice that God's eternal Son who is and continues true and eternal God. Even now, though this Son of Man, Jesus, is in heaven, highly exalted, it's not the case that He's no longer man now because He's been exalted. No, He remains fully man and also fully God. That's all part of the miracle. All part of all of this. And even though it's not the emphasis of the catechism, it's worth pointing out at this point. And this is all the work of God. This is what God had determined to do from the beginning of time. In fact, if you want to do true justice to election and predestination... You will notice our creeds and Scripture always emphasize Christ was first. That it was the design and purpose of God always and eternally. We might, if we talk a certain way, even before He thought of us, first thought of Christ. He's the Alpha as well as the Omega. The beginning as well as the end. And then He chose us into Him to belong to Him. But he was first. We always have to remember that to give glory to God. That even apart from us, even if we could separate ourselves from that, even if God had condemned us all to hell, God would have accomplished his one great purpose if he had simply, as it were, come in the flesh as Christ. But of course, that's really impossible because we are his body. And He came for our sake. And that's really what the salvation is all about. Here I want to emphasize again His work as the Son of Man. Sometimes it would be worth your while to go through Scriptures and notice that phrase, the Son of Man. Now, it's used in the Old Testament and not exclusively with Jesus. And the Scriptures do that to point out what that phrase is really getting at. For example, in Psalm 8, the question is asks, what is man, what is man, even the son of man, that thou visitest him? The idea is that son of man represents the human race. 
That phrase is used more times in all of Scripture in the book of Ezekiel. If you check out the trial of Jesus that's brought up in the book of Matthew, you will discover that Jesus is even convicted for calling Himself the Son of Man. The issue is whether He's Christ. The issue is whether He's the Son of God. The question is asked, I adjure thee by the living God, tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And notice what Jesus' response is. Thou hast said, that's true, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And with that, they convicted him of blasphemy. You just called yourself the Son of Man. They all understood what that meant. They knew the Scriptures. That was a phrase that was Christ-like. It's really this. We talked about Christ being His title. The phrase Son of Man tells you how He's going to operate as the Christ, as a man, a real man, man out of man, but the one who represents humanity and brings humanity to a place that Adam never could have taken us. Adam could have never taken us to the state, to the place, to the glory that Christ is going to bring us. Because this Son of Man is also the Son of God. He comes from heaven. He is God out of God. That's the amazing thing about the Incarnation. And so, all of the salvation that is accomplished by the Incarnation and the birth of Jesus may be seen in that light. Here it's worth pointing out even the fact that He's conceived and born. I don't think we do justice to this sometime. It's worth reflecting on. For example, if you ask the question, why did the church fight so hard over the fact that Jesus is truly man in every way like us, sin accepted. There's a lot of answers to that, but one of them always is, well, he has to be, he has to have a true human body to save our human bodies. He has to have a true human soul to save our human souls. He has to be man in order to save man. He has to be the Son of Man in every way possibly that you can imagine, except sin. Because sin is not an essential part of humanity. God created us without sin. And that's important. That's emphasized in the Holy Scriptures. This part of Jesus' existence and Jesus' work, the Son of Man, and as such, He represents us and He's going to bring us where Adam couldn't. He's the Son of Man from heaven. And He, the creeds always emphasized, must be that to save us. Now, back to his conception nativity. It's conceivable that God could have provided us a Savior, even a Son of Man, who wasn't conceived and born, I suppose. Nothing's too impossible for God, but God had him conceived and born. Even though his public ministry doesn't start until he's in his 30s, even though his public ministry only lasts approximately three years, ask yourself, why was he conceived and born? Well, you could say, well, that's, that, that's how we all are born. You'd be partly right on that. Think about this. That as the Son of Man, who is the Son of Man already in the womb 
of the Virgin Mary, it's so that He can save. He can save those who die in the womb of their mothers. It's so that He can save little children who die in infancy. No different really than saying He has to have a human body and soul to save human bodies and souls. Why is He conceived and born? So that He fully, truly experiences every aspect of our life and thus can save and redeem us from it. Because little children are sinners in the wombs of their parents. Those whom He saves are sinners. And don't minimize that. I think we do. But there's a reason why the narrative of Jesus' conception and birth has this little interruption where Mary meets Elizabeth and her little boy, who is not the Christ. He's not the Son of God. He's just a normal little boy. When he hears the words of Mary, the mother of his Savior, the mother of his Lord, as Elizabeth takes note, he leaps in the room with joy. With joy. Little infants in the womb are capable of joy. Even joy in their Savior. John the Baptist was not a one-off here. There's a reason why that's in Scripture, and there's a reason why it's connected with the very conception of Jesus. Just think about that. It's all part of His work as the Son of Man. Now, the Catechism emphasizes that work. He's the Son of Man in our redemption and atonement. The idea is that He represents us. Now, not just as Christ, but the Son of Man. He, re he represents us. When He redeems and when He atones, what He does... He does as the Son of Man, as their representative. When He goes and ascends to heaven, He goes as the Son of Man. We learn that His salvation is preserving us in that salvation He purchased for us. Well, He does that as the Son of Man. His one great task is not simply to come and then die. By the way, that's amazing too. He doesn't redeem and atone for our sins in His conception and birth, but it's His conception and birth that makes that possible. He's conceived and born in the womb of the Virgin Mary so that He can die, so that He can redeem and atone for us. But that's not the end of His salvation. It's to preserve us in that salvation. And to bring us with Him to glory. The idea is that everything He does, He does as our representative. Now, is that all men? Does the fact that He's the Son of Man means He represents all men? The answer clearly is not so. Even Mary takes note of that in her song. When the same Christ, he sa she says, is going to destroy the wicked, the ungodly. So who does He represent? What humanity? And the answer is those who belong to Him by faith those whom God chose in eternity to give to Jesus Christ, uniting them to Him by faith. By now, not the bond of blood, but the spiritual bond of faith. Now, let's bring all this home. could go on and on and on. It's an amazing thing to talk about. But what's the point? What's the point of all this? 
Why all this emphasis on all these little details, all these little things that I've pointed out? State of humiliation. The fact that He's the Son of God. Well, you can understand that best when you look at His humiliation. And here we need to differentiate between that and His condescension. The state of humiliation was not due to the fact that He took a human nature. If that were true, then Jesus is still humiliated. He, even though He's exalted at God's right hand, would still be being humiliated because He's still a man. That was a permanent union. No, it was God, however, condescending. It was God coming down from heaven to earth, even to the lowest earth. No, the humiliation was that He took human flesh under the curse of God. Again, that's why it's so important to emphasize that Mary was not perfect. Mary was a sinner. Mary was a sinner like you and I, and the flesh He took was corrupt flesh. Flesh corrupted with our sin. Flesh that was damned to hell. That deserved hell. That's the humiliation. The humiliation is that He takes flesh that's mortal and deserves to die. So understand that. But then there's also His condescension. And what do all these things emphasize? Really one thing. The mercy or the grace of God. Period. End of story. It is impossible to preach Jesus, to understand Jesus, to know Jesus, to go through all these things and ignore that fact. And now what's grace? Grace is the power of God to save us without the help or cooperation of ourselves. And what shows that more than anything else? And the answer is the conception and birth of Jesus. Oh, it's shown elsewhere. But if you want to see what the grace of God is really all about, simply look at the conception of birth of Jesus. Oh, it occurs in Mary. He is conceived in Mary. He's born of Mary. But it is so clear this is a work of God alone. Even when she's being called blessed, even when Elizabeth notes her blessed state, it's because God showed her favor. Not a favor she earned, not a favor she deserved. No, she was of lowly estate. One whom she even acknowledged she needs a Savior because she's a sinner. So what's the point? This is the work of God and God alone. That's all of our salvation. This is a microcosm. This is the beginning of all of our salvation. This represents it all. Everything that's done to us, everything that's done in us, everything that's done for us, is the work of God and God alone. And it's a gracious work. It's a work whereby God especially shows that here. God selecting Mary. God choosing her of all people. All these things point to that one great fact. That reality. And that's what the Scriptures mean when they really call this the doctrine of Christ. It's an amazing thing. You can look up 1 John. There in 1 John, this is called the doctrine of Christ. And you might think it's talking about more, but it's not. It's really talking about the incarnation. The doctrine of Christ is the incarnation. That's why John goes on to say, this is the difference between an antichrist and a Christ. The difference is, do you confess or not 
whether Jesus has come in the flesh, whether the Son of God has come in the flesh. That's the difference between it all. It's not simply do you believe He died and suffered on the cross, but do you believe He came in the flesh? So that He's truly God and truly man. There's either belief or unbelief with that. There's either Christ or Antichrist. And you say, well, why is that? Why, why can John isolate this particular issue? Why not the cross? Why not the atonement? And the answer because it's all there in a microcosm. The grace of God, the power of God, the willingness of God to save us. And all without our help or aid. So the question is, do you believe that? And believing that, now, do you trust in the Son of God, the Son of Man, alone, as your Savior? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, we again thank Thee for the wonderful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has come in our flesh, and done what we cannot do, what we do not deserve to do, has done something so wonderful that even by the power of the Holy Spirit we cannot comprehend it fully. It is beyond us. And so we pray that we may be thankful for this great salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ who represents us as the Son of Man and who humbled Himself even unto death, bearing our sins for us. This we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.